Chapter 10, Butterfly. Hello, Diane. Hi, Poppy, I said. I've been chilling on the sofa, fantasizing about experiencing the greatest love of all time while listening to India Ari's song, Ready for Love, when my dad's name popped up on the caller ID. He usually rang on weekends. This was a weekday. What is it? I asked. He paused. I got a call from Amelia today, he said. You did? I asked. My pulse quickened. Everything okay? He stopped. She cannot have you there any longer. I got up from the couch and walked toward the balcony to get some privacy. But I mean, why? I stammered. Because her oldest daughter just found out she's pregnant, he told me. She is? I said. I had seen Gabrielle's sister every day that week and hadn't noticed any change in her mood or demeanor. Yes, he told me, and with the baby coming, there's not enough room for you. My mind scrambled to process what he told me. Did I cause this? What did I do? What makes them want to get rid of me all of a sudden? Things seemed pretty perfect between Gabrielle and me, but earlier that week we had argued. Nothing major, just a tiff between friends. But upon learning this news from Poppy, I concluded that our disagreement must have prompted Amelia's decision. I pressed my father for information. So did I do something wrong? I asked. My voice shook. Are they upset with me about something? No, Miha, he told me. It's not about anything you did. Not at all. It's only because the house is too small. I wasn't convinced this was true. I'd made it all the way to the end of my sophomore year with no big dust up. There had to have been something that brought this on. I must have recently slacked on my chores without realizing. By my silence, Poppy could tell I wasn't buying his explanation. My eyes welled up with tears. Amelia and Gabriella had become like family to me, and I didn't want to feel lost again. Look, he went on, Amelia was only supposed to have you there for a few months. A few months? Until my father said that I hadn't known he and Amelia had ever agreed on a timeline. You've been now been with her for over a year. So what am I going to do, I asked. Well, he said, I've, spoke, I've spoken to Sabrina's parents. Upon the mention of my pal's name, a weight lifted from my shoulders. Huge exhale. They said they, that they'll take you in, he assured me. He then spent 10 minutes promising that all would be okay. I didn't want to move again. I'd gotten close to the family and didn't want to let them go. Despite Poppy's reassurances, I felt lost. At a moment's notice, I could be asked to leave. That's the reality when you're on your own. When, you're on your, when your own family, your tribe, isn't there to keep you grounded. I was grateful that Poppy had lined up my next move. And what better move than with my homie Sabrina and her parents, Eva and Don Federico. They come from Colombia years earlier, been granted citizenship, and owned their home. They lived upstairs. Sabrina's aunt and elderly grandmother lived downstairs in the other part of the two family. Because we'd all been friends for so long, I practically grew up there, like I had at Amelia's. All good. Even still, this is the truth. I was sick of all the changes. I wanted one thing in my life to be steady for longer than five minutes. I craved stability. Amelia heard me sniffling and knew why. Poppy had told her he talked to me that evening. She wandered over to the balcony, sidled up beside me, and placed her hand on my shoulder. I just want you to know something, Diane, she said softly. You didn't do anything wrong. She must have read my mind. My daughter's having a baby, she went on. That's it. That's the only reason. From the compassion in her eyes, I knew she was sincere. That eased the sting a bit. Once Amelia left the balcony, I wiped the tears from my face, pulled my act together, and dialed Sabrina. Hey, guess what, I said, trying to seem upbeat, although my heart was in my stomach. What, she said. I'm coming to your place, I told her. 
She giggled. I know, she exclaimed. My mother told me, but I couldn't say anything to you about it yet. A week later, I packed up. Gabriella helped me gather my things and saw me off. Sorry, dude, she told me. I hate to see you go. Amelia placed my bag into her trunk and drove me to Sabrina's home, which was in my old stomping grounds, Roslindale. Sabrina and her parents welcomed me, warm, welcomed me more warmly. Come on in, said Eva. You'll be in Sabrina's room. And that's how the summer before my junior year began. Another house, a whole new family, and a new reason to lament that my parents had been forced out of the country. Sigh. Here we go. I got a job. Sabrina had been working at iParty, this party supply store in Wexbroxbury. They sold everything from streamers, balloons, and Halloween costumes to paper plates and cups. Can you get me in? I asked her that August. I'll try, she said. A few weeks later, as the fall semester got underway, I was hired as cashier at fifteen five fifteen an hour, minimum wage back then. I put in 20 hours a week, mainly on weekends and a couple of days after school. Can I catch a ride with you? I'd ask Sabrina if our shifts overlapped. Yep, she'd say. She had this little green Jetta. She drove that thing to the ground. When Sabrina couldn't take me to iParty, I relied on the bus for the hike across town. The new responsibility was a lot to juggle with my studies, but it was worth it to me. Poppy continued to send me money, but his resources were dwindling. That Powerball money was long gone. If I requested cash for, say, school supplies, he scraped it together. But I had then later discovered he was running short on grocery money. So I stopped asking. Landing the gig meant I didn't have to depend on him or anyone. And bonus. If I wanted a cute shirt from H&M or a tube of MAC lip gloss, boom, I could purchase it for myself. It's tough to imagine that my time at Boston Arts, Arts could have gotten any better. But during my junior year, it did. That fall, Miss Jackson became the head of the vocal department. Her specialty was jazz. She encouraged us to study the greats, and she understood the importance of good musicianship. I'd been bitten by the blues bug all those years earlier in elementary school, so I knew this was going to work out great. I immersed myself in all things jazz and listened to Miles Davis, Davis, Roy Haynes, and Nina Simone. In the middle of the semester, Miss Jackson even gave me one of the best gifts I'd ever received. A Sarah Vong album. From the first note, my life was forever changed. There's something in Miss Vaughn's voice that just takes me away. I could listen to her for hours. I admired her power, her vocals, her elegance, and her ability to make me recognize both pain and our capacity to love. I studied the history, the evolution of the genre, the lyrics. Healing power lived in that music. With each note I memorized, I felt less alone. Others had been through far more than I had, and they channeled their pain into their art. From devastation, they'd create something beautiful. I wanted to one day do the same. Then again, I had my doubts, my insecurities, my secret fears that I'd never make it as a professional artist. Aside from that appearance from that appearance at Springfest, I'd rarely sang duets, much less solos. I didn't want to be too showy, staying in the background as a member of the chorus was safe. When I did step up, I thought I had to sing like everyone, like someone else in order to be good. Some of the other kids at BAA were very talented. I'm talking Whitney Pipes. Instead of appreciating my, appreciating my unique sound, I questioned my own talent because I didn't like the sound. I didn't like sound then. I didn't sound like them. I didn't yet have the confidence to be myself. Another concern also nagged me. If I pursued a career in the arts, how the heck would I pay my bills? Could I fully support myself after I left Eva's? 
once I was 18 on my own. At the time, that survival instinct was strong, so strong. In fact, it made me second guess my dreams. Let's not get it twisted. Those dreams were alive and well inside me. I was the same girl who laid atop my twin mattress and fantasized about tucking on Broadway. Yet as graduation inched closer, I got more and more convinced that I didn't quite have the chops to earn a living as a performer. And then there was a turmoil in my family. Between school and work, I kept myself insanely busy so I wouldn't have to think about all that had happened. Buried beneath all my activity was a broken heart. I became a classic avoider, talking to my mother and father only if there was no way out of it. Whenever Eva wrapped up a chat with my mother, she'd hand me her phone and say, Your mom wants to speak to you. I'd take the phone and think, Here we go again. Mommy's life was one never-ending telenova. Telenovela. Complete with full-length episodes of drama, hardship, and agony. During our calls, she'd remount all her difficulties and even those of her relatives. By then, she'd moved into another family member's house and had her own bedroom. So that was an improvement. Yet for the most part, her calls were filled with doom and gloom. This honor uncle had lost a job, someone had been mugged on the way to the grocery store, and of course, she ended up sobbing over how much she wanted us all to get together again. So did I. I just saw no point in rehashing it. Okay, mommy, I've got to go. I'd rush to tell her, I'd say to rush her off the line. It was my 16-year-old's way of shouting, I can't effing deal with this anymore. My poor mother. I now realize how difficult it must have been for her. I was still 16 and cranky. Meanwhile, I'd lost touch with another family member, my niece. I seldom saw Erica. With my parents and Eric away from Boston, the drifting apart happened naturally. I did once run into her and her grandmother in a park. Erica spotted me in a crowd and yelled, Aunt Diane! Aunt Diane! When I turned to notice her running toward me, the world stopped for a moment. In the middle of loud music, the screams, the children begging their mothers for cotton candy, I stood there dazed. She was about seven and had gotten so much taller. It made me suddenly aware of how our lives had moved on, how quickly time was passing. How are you, sweetie? I said, giving her a big hug. I miss you, she squealed. I know, I said, still stunned. Me too. If I was struggling at my age with my parents' deportation, it must have been crushing for her. She lost her father and two grandparents she'd lived with, all before her fifth birthday. I at least had my parents until I was 14. Although the circumstances were out of my control, I felt like I'd abandoned Erica. Just thinking about that broke my heart. Following our reunion in the park, Gloria occasionally brought my niece to Sabrina's place. But between her busy schedule as a single parent and all my responsibilities, our visits petered out. By that spring, my parents had taken to leaving angry messages on my voicemail. That's how infrequently I reached out to them. I loved and missed them as much as they did me, but talking to them was a reminder of everything I was desperate to forget. Please come here, sweetie, mommy would weep. I need to see you. My parents persisted so much that I finally agreed. I was also well aware of the need to give to Sabrina, Eva, and Don Fer- Federico a break from me because, let's face it, after a year, even the nicest hosts want a little break. So during the summer after my junior year, I booked a ticket for four weeks in Colombia. The trip was a blur. I may have gone there to spend time with my folks, but I didn't see much of them. That's because I was out chilling with my cousins, dancing at salsa clubs, and basically having a blast. It was my chance to let loose, to set aside the pressure of being a good girl, a perfect house guest. Every weekend, I hooked up with a bunch of other teens, and we'd 
and went to fincas, these summer house estates where wealthy kids hang. We'd camp there all night, make fires, play in the pool, and drink. You've got to be 18 to consume liquor in Colombia, but courtesy of my older cousins, I had my first shot of aguardiente, a Colombian liquor with a name that means fire water. One shot soon became two. Oh, and yes, let's not forget the tragedy belly ring I got. They were the crap at the time. So early 2000s. I thought it was cool. That is, until mine got affected and began oozing. I brought the party home with me. Senior year is where I blossomed socially. My self-doubts hadn't magically melted away, but I was becoming more sure of myself. I saved up a few hundred dollars, which gave me a sense of power. I threw myself into more extracurriculars. In class and out, I was learning to express my opinions. And rather than heading straight home after work, I wanted to have a life. I started hanging with my friends on the weekends, socializing, going to dinner. But I didn't get crazy or anything. I loved it when Eva trusted me, and I wanted to keep it that way. I never went buck wild or get rebellious. While my classmates who had their parents here would get into trouble for no reason, I thought it was pathetic. That probably seems judgmental, but I couldn't understand it. They had so many great things going for them, and yet were willing to ruin it. In a way, not having mommy and poppy close led me to give myself rules, structure, boundaries. I wasn't conscious of it, but it was like I was parenting myself in their absence. I wanted to show people that even without my family here, I could remain on track. In the fall, I traded in my job for another near campus. My friend Sophia, a theater major, an incredibly talented poet, got me in Barnes & Noble Cafe in the Prudential Center. She and my girl, Sasha, were always talking about how much they loved it there. Once I got hired, the three of us became our own little club. We called each other Habibi, an Arabic Arabic word that means my darling, because we'd heard it in Bend It Like Beckham, which we'd seen like a million times. We usually worked from 5 p.m. to close, or at the butt crack of dawn on weekends. It was fun. And I was growing up. When I wasn't whipping up cappuccinos or sneaking broken cookies into my mouth, I was hitting the books hard and prepping for SATs. With only months left until graduation, it was time to figure out my path. I really wanted to do work that made some kind of difference. Media was one idea I had. On campus, I was part of a literary and visual arts magazine called Slate Blue. Gabriella, several of the students, and I would gather our classmates' short stories, art, and poetry, and choose the best to include in an annual collection. As part of our participation in the group, we took a field trip to the offices of The Improper Bostonian, a glossy lifestyle publication. The editors there taught us the ins and outs of the magazine. While there, I daydreamed about how cool it would be to be appear on a magazine's cover. But the trip did spark a thought. Maybe I could be a television news anchor, a job that would bring together my love for performing and my desire to make a contribution. A teacher had once told me that I had to be very knowledgeable about politics and current events in order to be a good reporter, and that made a lot of sense. So I began exploring the possibility of studying political science communication. To be honest, I had no freaking clue what to do, what I'd do, but I did know I'd apply to college. The staff at BAA had ingrained that in me from the get-go. My spring semester, I was heavily committed to the dopest ensemble in school, rhythm and voice. The whole semester was about all about preparing for my senior recital, the final evaluation. We got to choose our own songs. I picked Funny Honey from Chicago and a classic French piece. I also chose Poor Wandering One from the Pirates of Penzance. And of course, there was my personal favorite, 
Sarah Vaughn's rendition of Poor Butterfly. Two afternoons a week, a voice coach came in to work with us one-on-one. I spent literally hours rehearsing, often even in my head while brewing coffee at Barnes. I intended to be ready. In March, many of my classmates began receiving acceptance letters from universities all over the country. I hadn't yet applied. Why? Because I was terrified that I wouldn't get in. It's not too late, Diane, my guidance counselor, Mr. McGillan, told me. I can help you with the paperwork. In response to his nudge, I made a list of women's colleges. I had this notion that in an all-female environment, I'd be able to focus. No boys to distract me. Up to then, I had, a had, I had had a serious boyfriend. He was a boy whose name I will not mention. He broke my heart into a million, my million tiny pieces. You know who you are. I thought I loved you, and you loved me. Insert the ugliest cry face you will ever see in your life. I'm sure every girl has come across an F-boy or two in high school and beyond. It hurts. Anyway, I digress. I had experienced enough to realize that even puppy love can pull your attention away from your studies. I didn't even want the possibility of nonsense. Also, I've been reading a lot this, this year that Simone de Beauvoir and many other cradle feminists. Who knows why I connected my interest in feminism with going to a women's college, but I did. I applied to five programs in New England, and only the five I thought I had a shot at. Some of my friends were aiming for the Tufts and Northeastern. Not me. As hard as I pushed to overcoming my learning disabilities and get grades, my GPA was average, not stellar. I knew I had to be realistic. I didn't have the guts, the money, or the test scores to aim for prestigious schools. I was also fearful of leaving Boston, the only city I'd ever known. Even if, once in college, I wouldn't see much of Eva or Amelia as I did during all of high school, I still wanted them nearby as my security blankets. That April, I got called in for a few interviews, and one of them was at a school near the top of my list, Regis College, a private Roman Catholic university a few miles outside of downtown Boston. Eva drove to my small to the small campus. It was gorgeous. Lush green lawns that were flawlessly maintained, massive trees, historic brick buildings. Just beyond campus, I felt like I was finally realizing my fantasy of living in a white suburban town. I sat in a few classes, and the vibe was wonderful. It seemed like I could really make a path for myself there, grow as a student, and make lifelong friends. Everyone was so chill, and the teachers, some of who were nuns, seemed to care about the students. Things were looking up. I knew what I'd come to do, sell myself. Much of what I've gotten in my life had nothing to do with what's on paper. Put me in a room, and I can talk myself into or out of anything. It's called the gift of gab. I went wearing a cute dress and my, fake, my strand of fake pearls, and I made myself my case to the admissions team as strong as I could. I would be a great addition to your school, I told them passionately. I was probably the worst choice, but I wasn't going to tell them that. If you give me this opportunity, I continued, I will do everything possible to excel. A month later, boom shakalaka, I was accepted. What did they, what did they get themselves into? Whatever. I was going to call it biatches. I got into one other school, but I settled on Regis right away. It didn't hurt that they offered me a financial aid package that covered the majority of my first year costs. I did have a moment of panic, however, when I realized I'd still have to take out some loans. Who could sign for me? No one. And I thought it was too much to ask of Eva or Amelia. So I blundered my way through the forums and somehow got funded. I'd understand a lot of I didn't understand of what I a lot of what I signed up for, and years later I'd paid dearly for some of my choices. 
let's just say Sally Me and I had had words over the years. Okay, fine. We basically stopped talking after she accused me of being a th- uh, thieving biatch, and accused I accused her of being a gr- money grubbing whore. Oh, but don't worry, Sally. You'll get your money. A couple of weeks before the end of the term, my senior recital came up around. I rose early that morning, and while showering, I warmed up my voice with some scales. I wore bu- beautiful pink strapless dress, one I'd pick out at Charlotte Russe, and pink flowers in my hair from my other favorite designer, H&M. I wore my mother's shawl as a good luck charm. I could still smell her perfume on it. When I arrived in the music room, which was called the Boston Conservatory, Miss Jackson, my voice coach, and a few others were teachers were waiting. You ready? asked Miss Jackson with a smile that told me she knew I was. Yes, I said with assurance. I am. The next hour was one of the most special of my life. This was then my night. It was my time to shine. As I sang the piece I'd worked so hard to polish, the music transported me somewhere else, a place where sorrow and heartache and misery do not exist. I didn't try to pull myself back into the present. Rather, I gave into the feeling, allowing it to carry me off. I ended with a jazz standard called Poor Butterfly. It's about a Japanese girl enchanted by an American man who never returns to be with her. John Ray Raymond Hubble wrote the song about the main character in Pukini's Madame Butterfly. I'd chosen it because it struck a powerful chord in me, the abandonment, the hoping and waiting and yearning for something that doesn't happen. I'd been so moved the first time I heard Sarah Vaughn perform it. Now it was my turn. At the end of my concert, the room went wild. Miss Jackson and the other teachers all stood and clapped, a long round of applause that meant more to me than any I'd received since. Sabrina, Eva, and Gabriella, and Amelia all sat beaming and clapping in the front row. I was so appreciative of support, even though I missed my parents. I had done it, and it was feeling a better, a feeling better than I, any I'd experienced. It took so much courage for me to put my voice on display, to let myself be seen and heard as I am. And for once, I was not afraid. Someone wise once said, there are really only two emotions, fear and love, and it's impossible to feel them at the same time. On that morning in that room, I was surrounded by an overwhelming spirit of love alone. And the recital went so well that I began regret, regret not applying to a conservatory. But I placed the foot on the path toward Regis in the fall of 2004. So in my mind, that meant it was too late. Someone should have talked me out of that. That entire school year and all the way up to gra- through graduation, mommy and, my mommy and poppy called. And called. And called. It was as if they could sense I was drifting further and further away from them. And they were grasping to hold on to something, anything, that would keep our relationship intact. They'd missed a lot. Proms, recitals, birthdays. Think about all the big things that happened between ages 14 and 18. All the markers were hit. How we change and develop and step into our personalities. At the end of, years of, my, at the end of my years at Boston Arts, I was already a little adult. I had grown from that girl once frightened and shivering under a bed into a poised young woman, a butterfly, ready to spread my wings and navigate my life. And my parents, as deeply as they wish otherwise, hadn't been there to witness any of the transformation.